Romans 16, verse 20. The God of peace, I'm sorry, verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we humble ourselves now to hear your word. Teach us by it. Lord, may you be exalted in it. May Christ be praised, Lord, in our hearts as we read. May we heed the warnings here. They are for us, and they are so needful in this hour. I pray that we would be hearers and doers of your word. As we go away from here, may we say it's been a joy to be in your house. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've been following along now, three years or so we've been in Romans, and we're coming to the end of it very quickly. At several points in this letter to the Romans, which I think probably is the greatest letter ever written, the Apostle Paul has a series of what's called dialogical arguments, where he teaches this church truth as it were in a dialogue, in a dialogue format. In chapter 2, after he's already laid the foundation of the need for the Gentiles to be saved because they're all in sin, he talks to then those who are proud of their, their ethnicity as Jewish people and their Mosaic covenant and warns them that if they're trusting in the law of Moses to save them, indeed, they won't be saved. He says, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things? He's speaking there about the Gentile unbelievers who practice wicked sins. And yet do them yourself. He says, you do them yourself. You do these same sins as they. Do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and the forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And then verse 9 of chapter 2, he says, There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But you see there in verses 3 and 4, these questions, these di- this dialogue he's, he's teaching in, re- in regards to these dialogical questions that he brings up. You think you're going to escape the judgment of God because you're trusting in the law of Moses. You won't. The law of Moses demonstrates that you yourselves are sinners just like Gentiles are. Both will be under the judgment of God in the end, if that's what you're trusting in. It won't save you, in other words. In chapter 3, there are at least 10 questions in the same vein in 9 verses that regard how, despite real advantages, the Jews, trusting in the law of Moses or under the law of Moses merely, is equally in need of the gospel as the Gentiles are. Chapter 3, 9. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin, is how he resolves those questions. And what we see in these teachings, and he goes on in chapter 6, and we'll see a little bit of that, is that the truth of the gospel is not relative, but absolute. One of the things that is 
very clear in these first few chapters is that there is no other way to God but through Jesus Christ. The gospel of God concerns his son. And that is the means of eternal life and the only way of it. There is a universal need then. Both Jews and Gentiles are under sin. And then both need then the gospel. All need the gospel. For there is no other way to God. And brief Paul's apostolic teaching in this epistle has been a series of affirmations of truths concerning a message that's come down from God to the hearers of both of all peoples, Jews and Gentiles means every human being, and their need for salvation. But what is essential in, in my concern and in, in relating that to your ears this morning is that there are not many truths. There is one truth. There is one way to God ironed out in this epistle and indeed the scriptures. There is one need of all sinners that's, that's, that's consistent among all sinners, no matter where you've come from, because you are a sinner. And that message has come to the world. Not a message of judgment or condemnation. Jesus said, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through me. It's a message of hope. It's a good news message. But it's one without shadow, shades, if you will. It's true. It's God's truth. And it must be believed on for eternal life. The apostolic teaching here in, say, Romans, let's just keep our focus in Romans, is God's message concerning his Son. Inspired by the Spirit, it's not debatable among men. We, we cannot look at it and say, well, that's a nice theory of how God will accept sinners. And if you go to Hindu, they have a, another theory about how that works with a multitude of gods. And so their sincerity will get them where they need to go. Ours will get us and, and Muslim and, and everybody and even the skeptics, if they're sincere in their skepticism, as long as you're sincere, that's the main abiding truth is sincerity. But that's not, according to the word of God, the answer for sinners. It's not the answer for the believer either to say that, oh, once we're in the faith, then it doesn't matter. We can just live however we want. We'll live however we decide we want to live and still be conceived as God's children. Chapter 6, verse 4, Paul uses these same dialogical arguments to argue for the truth of the Christian life. How do Christians live? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You see the questions. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? I read this with the Seeger family. I read this with my daughter this week. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. There's a truth that designates the practice of the Christian life. Christ said, if you do not abide in me, in the vine, there is no place for eternal life in the person who, as Christ in his parable of the sower, 
is thrown on that soil that just springs up the plant right away, but underneath is all rocky or weedy or the birds come and they just rip that seed out. Unless there is fruit that abides unto newness of life, has the gospel taken root. Our faith is grounded upon God's truth. I want us to understand that before we come to our text this morning. It's not a relative truth that we abide in the grace of God. It is truth that brings us unto eternal life, and it is God's truth. This is the way that the apostle opens up this letter. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, verse 1 of chapter 1, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. That's his message, that's his ministry, that's his sending, that's his passion, that's his purpose in his life, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. And here's what the gospel of God concerns his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. One message from God concerning his Son for all sinners, because they're all alike including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's purpose in this letter has been that that gospel come to this church, it has been received by this church, that that church be grounded in it, know how their lives should be informed by it, and indeed is being enriched by it, enabled by it. Their lives are now new because of the gospel. Their victory over sin will be because of Christ in them. Their hope for the future is because of that gospel. Everything has been in Paul's teaching as a result of the gospel or because of the gospel or in need of the gospel, salvation comes to sinners. And that truth is where Paul has grounded his confidence in this church. But he loves this church. He loves them enough to warn them that there will be contradictions to this message. You, church out here, so many of you I don't know personally this morning, so many of you I'm just getting to know, if you are in Christ church, you will be confronted with false teaching that contradicts this gospel, this epistle, this word that has come to us from God for our salvation. And Paul knows that, and he loves his church. Remember verse 17. How does he end that list of greetings from verses 1 through 16? He ends it there in verse 16. I'm sorry. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The love of Paul abounds to this church. And love is where these warnings come from today. So there's two things that we need to understand. All that was background. What this regards today concerns God's truth. It's not debatable. It is his truth. It's not relative. It's his truth and it's for eternal life for sinners. Nothing short of eternal life is at stake 
with regards to what Paul is concerned with here, with regards to what we'll see this morning. First, watch out and avoid false teachers, verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. There's two verbs here that I've pointed out in this first point. Watch out, scapeo. It's very interesting. We get the idea of scope, scoping something out. And avoid describes this necessary response from the church to those who cause division. Watch out and avoid. We are to pay close attention, to be on guard, to be able to discern and to know and to see where Differences lie with regards to those who would cause division. Avoid them means that we physically remove ourselves from them so that we do not entertain their teachings or doctrines. Now, if we're paying attention to what we're reading here, we notice that Paul has done something very, some might say, postmodern, and it's not postmodern at all. But you know what he's doing? He's calling us to divide from those who cause division. Do you hear that? He's calling us to recognize, to watch out, to be alert, on guard for those who cause division, and then remove ourselves from them. Well, what is he, a relativist? How does he, what does that mean? Paul, in other words, is not one of the modern-day pragmatists, maybe, or pluralists who say the, the great evil of the church is division. The great evil of the day is division. I grew up, oh man, I hate this moniker, this, you know, as you're, you're growing up in the church, you hear so many new philosophies that come around. And as I read and as I prepared for this, it was a hard service not to just talk about all of the false teachings that I've heard growing up and that I see in the world now. I'm going to try to stay within the confines of this text, though. But I remember hearing this moniker, doctrine divides, love unites. And we hear it all the time. Love wins, right? All of these catchphrases that seem to want to say something so profound and say nothing at all. In fact, they imply lies. They imply a lie. This idea that what Paul is doing here is somehow akin to postmodernism or relativism, or that he's not making any sense because division is that great evil, doesn't understand what I argued for at the very beginning, that there is a message at stake here. The reason Paul calls for division is because there are those who will contradict the message that will result in eternal damnation for people made in God's image. And Paul says there's nothing for it but to divide from those people. Galatians, you know, he says it stronger there. 
If anyone preaches any other gospel, not that there is another gospel, let them be anathema. Let them be damned. That's divisive. But it's uniting. Do you understand? He says it in love because apart from that gospel, no one can be saved. So we have to come out of the world for a minute. And out of all of the cliches we hear all around us every day that have no basis in the biblical record of truth. You see, the Bible is not for us to flippantly hear and just start putting cliches to. It is for us to meditate on. It is for us to think on, to dwell on, to ask God for mercy that we may understand it. To to bear ourselves into it. Paul says, many twist the scripture, or Peter says it in 2 Peter chapter 3, many twist the scriptures to get it to say, to comport with what they want it to say. No, the scriptures need to twist us. It needs to, 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 to make us straight, to get us out of our crooked ways. And sometimes just coming to texts like this, and seeing that the, the apostle calls us to divide sometimes. Now, I say that to you, to a church, where in chapter 14, I argued very strongly that too often the church is dividing. And what are we dividing over? What color this carpet is? What direction the church faces? Should we put curtains in the windows? Should we drink wine or should we have a cigarette? Or what, what all of these things that we are often, should you take a vaccine? Let me make it closer to home. Should you mandate this? Should you, what, are you, what are we dividing now? We're dividing over all sorts of things that have to do with scruples that God does not define as absolutely essential for salvation. We're going to run each other through because we don't align with the science that we like to follow. And we divide over it to our own shame. But Paul says there are things that we need to divide on. How are we to make sense of his argument here then? We need to see how this, these teachers come. How these teachers we need to see something about them. Notice what they do. They cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. There's the truth. There's the truth. You see why I, I brought us back a little ways. The division they cause is due to the corruption of the apostolic truth. The word that we now have in canon that was given by God as the Holy Spirit carried them men about to give us these truths. The word Paul uses for division is only seen one other time in one other list in all of the New Testament. Very, very interestingly, it's found in Galatians 5.20, which is in the list of the works of the flesh. The last word there, the works of the flesh, idolatry, verse 20, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousies, Fits of angers, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. Paul is saying, keep an eye on so as to avoid those who contradict apostolic doctrine. 
The division of the church is the evidence that these are false teachers. They will divide the true church. When such teachers contradict God's truth revealed in Scripture, they inevitably divide the church because their message contradicts God's gospel. And not only does it do that, it creates obstacles, stumbling blocks for faith and for growth in faith. Now, Paul has already established perimeters for truth and unity in truth and unity in Christ, faith in Christ, and also how we ought not to be divided. The gospel is Paul's main concern in Romans, as I've already argued. But that gospel pertains to every aspect of salvation, sanctification or justification, sanctification and glorification. Paul bears the the implications of the gospel message out for all things, God's purposes in the world, even, even future things in Romans 11. This includes an entire portion, chapter 14, which outlines that divisions must never come due to our scruples. And so Paul is not concerned that the church be over, oversensitive to separation. I came out of a movement that, was, that majored on separation. And I'm still part of that movement. Those are God's people in that movement. So, so I'm not separating from them, if, if I could say it like that. But they look for everything. Woman, if you wear a pant, we've got to separate. Uh, your eschatological view, we've got to separate. I mean, everything was a matter of separation. Paul is saying the essential matters here is what we must separate on. This is where he is. Nothing less than contradiction of the apostolic gospel is what is at stake here. And so it's his concern that these teachers would upend the gospel and its necessary fruit, godliness, in the life of believers. Second, the marks of these false teachers. Verse 18, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Now, this is not a complete list of false teachers. You know, the New Testament is full of teaching regarding false teachers. You, you come out of reading the New Testament, Jesus, it begins there. Well, maybe, maybe it begins with John calling those, the, the, the Pharisees, serpents, vipers. And then Jesus comes, and he's no easier on them. He probably wouldn't be easy on us either. And then you have the apostles come along, and they're warning the churches left and right, up and down, about false teachers. But what is it about these false teachers that we can look out? What are some of their marks that we can look out for? We're supposed to scope them out. First, they do not serve our Lord Christ. Their service is not rendered for Christ's glory. That's not the end or the goal or the means by which they are serving. One of the marks of a true servant of Christ is whether or not they are always leading you to Christ. If you're under leadership that you don't hear that the glory of Christ is what you need to be concerned with in your life, if Christ is not being exalted or magnified in the preaching, if it's more about you than about him, leave that ministry. Leave it. 
It's one of the marks Paul says right here, they are not serving Christ. Anybody who is a minister of the gospel knows they are not the one the message is about. Paul calls himself somebody who has the treasure of God, namely Christ, in a clay jar or a clay pot. That's him. He's the clay pot. And he has something invaluable for you, Christ. That is the passion of every true teacher and every true preacher of Christ, is Christ. Christ is not merely the name by which we teach. His glory is the goal of all gospel preaching. Indeed, boasting only in the Lord is the chief end of the apostolic message itself. Every single thing we read in the New Testament abounds to the glory of Christ. That's the first lack. That's what they lack. They do not serve our Lord Christ. Instead, second, they serve their own appetites. That is, their stomachs. Now, this doesn't mean they merely are gluttonous. It indicates that false teachers are seeking seeking satisfaction in temporal things for themselves in this temporal realm this may not appear just like we think we may have in our mind the 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 tv preacher in a rhinestone suit flashy but really it can take on anything that we desire right it could it could take on anything it could it's it's able to morph into anything i think that's one thing we see about the church this these days isn't it you take the the missions aspect of what paul says i become all things to all men so that by all means i may gain some and by that you see preachers dressing up just like they think their constituency the world around them wants them to look and so you know i grew up in a church that wore suit and ties and Oftentimes, the the stress was too much laid on what you look like. But I thought it was ironic that coming out of that, I saw a a movement in the church that said, you don't have to wear suit and ties. And what they were saying is, you should not wear suit and ties. And and so, you know, it's... in a sense, it all becomes back on like what we look like and what we appear like and, and how we're conveying ourselves to the world. And what Paul is saying about becoming all things to all, all men, that I may save some, he's saying, I will restrict my freedoms. I will restrict what I would like to do to, in order to not be a stumbling block to those who I, mis- who I bring the gospel to. He's not saying we're like chameleons, that just whenever we feel the times changing, we just fall right in line with the world and so look like them and act like them and talk like them and everything like them. There's a lot of preachers that I really appreciate that I think are in danger with all the good intentions in the world, if I could say that of appeasing sinners by the way they look, by the way they talk. You know, I, I'm here from Montana in Hawaii, and we have a village of Hawaiian people right over here. And I want 
to reach that village. I, in my mind, I would love to see the Hawaiian people, m- m- as many as God would bring from this village into this church. But I'm not going to fake it. I, I'm not going to fake it. I'm not going to become a flatterer. I'm going to go to them. We should go to them in love. Absolutely without any distinguishing mark between how we minister to one another here and call them to a God who loves them and gave his son for all the nations of the world. I look around this church and I'm, we are blessed to see represented here the nations of the world and may God continue to increase that we look like that multitude in revelation standing before the throne or kneeling before the throne of God all the nations what a beautiful thing it is you know Vodi Bakum I heard him say recently that if you don't see color then you don't glorify God for what he's made he said it's like if you look out on the rainbow and you were to pretend that you don't see any of those shades, well, you're not going to see any of the beauty of it. You look around this, this sanctuary, and you see the beauty of God's creation in the shades that he's made us. Not like those shades matter or determine our place with God one iota, but God has wrought things purposely on you, and those things are good. You see, even that, I'm just getting all off point here, aren't I? But even that, we're, we're carried away with the way the world tells us to think about things. This, this is how you answer racial injustice. You become colorblind. God made us who we are. He made us distinct from one another in that regard. Praise the Lord for it. Welcome your brother and sister who doesn't look like you and say, praise God. God has made you the way you are. And that doesn't define you and your value or mine before God. Ultimately. So we can say thank you for the beauty. And we say thank you that you've accepted all of us through Christ. Where am I here? Yes, it's not about the outward things primarily. It's not then about how we flatter one another to get people to come to our church or to hear the message of Christ. Flattery is to tell somebody what you think they want to hear that doesn't comport with truth. And we are absolutely in danger as as teachers and preachers in the church every, every day to become flatterers. Because you know why? We want you to love us. We want you to accept us. We want to be liked. I don't know very many pastors who want to be rejected by the people they preach to or the congregants they minister to. But these, this is their appetite. This is the way they do things. This is their purpose. They're perfectly fine with filling their bellies by any means possible. Verse 18 at the end there, by smooth talk and flattery, they deceit deceive the hearts of the naive I don't think naive there is is those is is a I don't think he's trying to 
tear them down. I think he's trying to say, who don't know better, who aren't prepared. He's not saying you're ignorant or you're not smart or something merely on that regard, but this is why I'm writing to you, so you're not naive about this. You'll have smooth talkers. You'll have people that tell you what you want to hear to make you feel comfortable in your pew. That's a, that's a battle for me sometimes. I want you to know that. Sometimes I have to speak to issues because I know the people of this church. And I have to speak on issues that are true that we may disagree on or you might find offensive. And I want you to know it's never because I want to offend you that I say those things. But I have to speak the truth. I have to speak the truth in love. A false teacher is about gaining followers for him or herself. I can put the her in there now, can't I? They want followers for themselves. Second Timothy 4, 3 and 4. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So don't be surprised when you see these false teachers have big followings. And here I'm preaching to a full church. A full church, and it's been full for a long time, and it seems to be getting fuller, and God is blessing in that. But when you see false teachers, do not be surprised that they have big followings, because there are people that want it. They're clamoring. Nobody's out there saying, my special interests. They're not speaking to my special interests. Where's the guy speaking to my special interests? What's your special interest this morning? What is it? What topic is it? What political issue is it? If your special interest is Christ, then Paul is the one speaking to you. He's speaking to you this morning. He's warning you this morning about teachers like this. And he says, brothers, join in imitating me, Philippians 3.17. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. This is what these false teachers are about. But they're ably speakers. They're able speakers. They're smooth They know what the the masses want to hear, and they speak it even if it contradicts the message. And you see, that's what causes the division. It's the message that contradicts the truth that causes the division in the church. We had a man come here last February, and I remember this very plainly because I had mono, and I didn't know I had mono. I knew I didn't have COVID, so at the time, if you don't have COVID... You can sort of be out in the world, but if you have mono and you feel like you're going to die for a month, eh, no big whoop, right? So I was here at the church trying to push through it. I felt terrible. He came, and you remember he had a robe and a staff, and he looked very humble, and he talked very meekly, and he was very kind, and he wanted to help. He came, and he talked for me with me for 20 minutes. How can I be of assistance to the church? And as I started to get to know him, I noticed that he didn't adhere to true doctrine of the church. 
And so I didn't ask him to help. I didn't involve him. I didn't forbid him in coming because I, I, I did see a sort of humility there. Well, in this particular Wednesday, no one else was here. I was here alone. He knocks on the door. I came out. He asked for something that he had given the church. He asked for it back. So I gave it back to him, and I offered him some coffee. And while he was, I was getting coffee, he started kind of preaching, saying that I had to leave my wife and my family in this church because this church is wayward, and they're not following the commands of God found in Matthew 10. And he, he started sort of prophesying that I was in contempt of God's will, and I had to leave my family and my, just like Jesus commands, you know, he said. This is a false teacher. Very humble. You know, he said, I don't have anything. It's not always the guy on TV with the rhinestone suit. Sometimes it's, it's the person who is meek and quiet at first and doesn't appear like they're going to make any waves or bumps. But they have an agenda, and their agenda doesn't align with the word of God. Number three, at-risk churches. At-risk churches, 19 and 20. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Paul praises this church from the beginning to the end of this epistle. In chapter 15, verse 14, he extols them for their goodness and their knowledge and ability to teach one another. Here he rejoices over their obedience, and I take that to mean obedience in faith, in believing and submitting to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This was a mature, this was a godly church. But it seems that this praiseworthy church was in fact susceptible to false teachers if not forewarned. There's an important humility, I think, that's for every church, that there, because we see Paul's high esteem for this church, he still nevertheless deems it appropriate and right to warn them. You members of this church, you regular attendees of this church, you sit there and you say, oh man, our church is not like that. And our pastor, he's not like that, thank the Lord. And Kyle and Brother Tim and the preachers here, Brother Ron, we have, we're just above this. Be humble. Hear this. Hear this. Paul esteems this church highly and warns them. We need to take this warning then. We must not be puffed up to think that we could never be in danger of such a situation. Here's the heart of Paul's warning. I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. He doesn't want the church to wind up like God's covenant people in Jeremiah's day. Jeremiah 4.22, this is such an awful thing to hear. For my people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil but how to do good, they know not. John Stott was very wise when he said, to be wise in regard to good is to recognize it, love it, and follow it. That is teaching that comports with it. 
With regards to evil, he wants them to be unsophisticated. Isn't that a blessing? Think about that. You know, one of the temptations of Christian leaders is to seek the praise of fellow intellectuals. Because oftentimes our, our Christian leaders in the churches, they have this many degrees after their name and they spend all the time going to college and getting those things and they want to be accepted in the guild. They, they want to be members of it. They have, even if they don't, they do. It's, it's part of our nature. We've worked hard. We've applied ourselves. I've read Plato. I've read Aristotle. I have a good grasp of the history of philosophy. I have languages under my belt. I have all this rep, rep, good reputation of learning, and I want to be accepted. And you're in danger. We're in danger. Because the message of the cross is foolishness to the world, to the unbeliever. It's foolishness. There is a sense where no matter how intellectually astute a Christian minister is, you're, you will never be acceptable to the world, to those who oppose Christ. And you have to be okay with that. And so does the church. Some churches, I, I've seen it. They want their pastor to be intellectually viable. I mean, they, they want him to be known, not just that he is. A pastor should not be a child, should not be immature, should be well-learned. However, some churches, that's what they're concerned with. Hey, our pastor, he's getting another degree, so he's a great pastor. And, and I hope that Oxford really understands what a great pastor and we have this pastor that has all these things, these qualities, and he's so smart. And, and you almost want your pastor to become that. A talking head, as it were. Accepted. No. There is a sense where we need to be okay with being unsophisticated in the eyes of the world. We need to be okay with the world thinking that we're, we're fools. According to their wisdom, we are. According to God, we believe in the wisdom of God. And, and anybody who believes in Christ knows that's worth forsaking every admonishment of the world. When weighed out together, I believe the apostle is especially warning against any false doctrine that would lead to sensual living. There's all sorts of arguments as to what is he, is he concerned with antinomianism, this against the law sort of thing, licentious living, is he against self-righteousness, what is he speaking against? And I think there is a sense where all of those things could be relative to what he's saying, but I think that there is a sense where he does not want this church to be taught lies or to receive lies that lead them not only to a place where they can't grow in the Lord, but where they actually start representing Satan in the world instead of Christ. Why do I say that? Well, the, the last phrase here, the God of patience, or the next phrase, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now, some people say this is just out of place. What is Satan doing here? 
and I don't think that at all. I think false teachers and Satan have a very close connection. I, I think it's the means whereby Satan is working in the world. False teachers. The fight will, though, he says to the church at Rome, be decided ultimately. Peace will reign in the end because God is the God of peace. In fact, the end has already been signaled to us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, chapter 8. A new heaven and new earth await God's people. 2 Peter 3.13 says that because of that, we joyfully look forward. And all things are under Christ's feet now, Hebrews 2.8. And Christ accomplishes his purpose in coming by destroying the works of the devil. Look to 1 John 3.8. I'm going to read it. You can just follow along. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. This is where I start seeing the connection for practice there in, in our text. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And the whole impetus between, in the context of 1 John here is that believers, therefore, because Christ has accomplished his purpose for coming, must not be doers of evil because we are not under the devil's dominion. Colossians chapter 1. We are in the kingdom of Christ. I think the text in John, though, makes the devil's influence... Very, very helpful for us to see what our text is saying. He says, the devil's influence is known by the fact that people make a practice of sinning. If you hear a, a teacher say, it doesn't matter that you practice sin. Or, or, that's not sin, what God calls sin. That's not sin, that's okay. God loves, he's a God of love. And he's... He wants us to love one another. Today, sexual sins is the great matter of the day, isn't it? It's the great moral debate of the, the, the day, and it's the moral debate of the church. Now, you will be accepted or unacceptable whether you accept the, the, the popular social moral with regards to sexual ethics. You know, Interestingly enough, after that man berated me and swore at me after I told him that he was wrong about my wife and me leaving her, he, he went off this lanai, and there was a whole host of people over there at the juice stand, and about 10 feet from that bridge, he turned around and he said, and the way that you preached about homosexuals and your hatred towards them and that you don't love them was terrible. God loves everyone and wants everybody to do what they want to do. And he said that, and I think he said that so they could hear him. But right there it dawned on me, if they believe that I hate homosexuals because I call homosexuals to repentance and faith in Christ so that they will have eternal life, just like I would call adulterers and fornicators and every sinner to that same end, but if the world out there hears that, then now all of a sudden he's the righteous one. And I'm the, I'm the wicked one, right? That's how we weigh righteousness nowadays. But John and Paul say whoever practices sin is influenced by the devil. The devil is the one who is enjoying mastery over you, in other words. 
But the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I believe this means in context that false teachers will not defeat. And he will, they will. Paul is encouraging, I think, the church here to know that these false teachers will not overcome God's work of grace in the heart of his people. He warns, this is how Paul does, he warns and he encourages. He grounds us in the faith, he warns us, he loves us enough to warn us, and then he says, but God is the one who will give you the victory over Satan and his minions, namely these false teachers. So this is a glorious admonishment. When we follow Paul's warning, he demonstrates that the God of peace has indeed taken us out of the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's the, that's the good news. That's the impetus of the gospel. We are no longer bound to the guilt of our sin nor the power of our sin. Romans 3 through 7 through 8, really. Go back and read it again. We are not under Satan's dominion. We are under the dominion of Christ and the spirit that indwells us. When we resist false teachers, we demonstrate indeed that Satan's dominion over us is finished. And then he closes with this. Again, an encouragement and an admonishment and a prayer. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with, with you. This is both a benediction and a prayer, and it encapsulates our victory between the God of peace and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ by the God of peace and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. This at once esteems Christ as God, equal with God. Notice how he encapsulates the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet and then the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Only false teachers deny the deity of Christ. Paul has been so honorable to Christ in this epistle. Worshipful. Remember chapter 9, verse 5, he comes out there and he explicitly gives praise to Christ as God. And so he does here, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Beloved, with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ upon us, we will be saved from false teachers. Satan will be defeated absolutely on your be Some of you may be struggling. I struggled for years with feeling an oppression, Satan's oppression, because of the temptation of besetting sins. For years. God has been gracious in many of those places. I see the dominion of Christ in my life because I see the sanctifying work of the Spirit. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with you. May it be with you.